Now before we get into today's recording, we have a small announcement for you regarding a change in format. Up until now, we've been coming to you monthly, but what we plan on doing is recording as many great scientists as we can over the course of a year and presenting them to you in a more seasonal format. So for 2017, we'll be collecting such scientists and bringing them back to you at the beginning of 2018 on a weekly basis. So if you experience some radio silence for a while, you'll know why. But now onto our main event, which is the third and final part of our March for Science special. Our guest in this case is Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, who is a marine biologist, a policy advisor, and a defender of science. She comes to you courtesy of our episode entitled The Advocate. We hope you enjoy, and we'll be back with you with many more great podcasts in 2018. To begin with, we have Ayana Johnson, who is the Partnerships Co-Chair for the March for Science. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Thanks so much for speaking to us. Oh, my pleasure. So how did you enjoy the march yesterday? It was really heartwarming. I mean, just to see tens of thousands of people in D.C. standing in the rain because they know how valuable science is to society and how critical it is to include it in policy making. I was like, we threw a party for science and people showed up. <laughs> so at a That's fundamental a level, it's just like amazing to see um, people mobilize for something that um, seems like uh, sort of counterintuitive that it would even be necessary. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your background. What do you do? Um, I'm a marine biologist, so, uh, but I'm not, I don't have, you know, samples in the lab waiting for me to analyze pieces of Mars, which is like the coolest thing. Um, I have been focused for the last 10 years on integrating science into policymaking. So this um, whole march and movement is really core to the work I do and the way I see the world. So I um, am, right now I have a consulting firm that uh, works on providing solutions for ocean conservation issues um, and does that in a way that centers social justice. So thinking about um, how science can serve communities um, and support policymaking um, that is good for people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It sounds like more of these organizations are needed that, to bridge this gap between science and policy as well. Mm -hmm. um, so specifically, what was the motivation for the march? How did it all begin? Yeah, so I wasn't one of the original um, founders. I joined after two weeks or so of, of this flurry of activity where people were thinking, oh yeah, we should march for science. How, how do we do that? Who wants to lead this? And so our three co-chairs came together um, to carry this idea forward, and I joined on as co-director of partnerships because 
I'm just really excited about the opportunity to build this broad and diverse coalition of organizations that really value the role of science in society and all that it does for our health and well-being and economies. And so uh, with the other co-director partnerships, TION, um, we've led this effort to build this coalition, which is about 300 organizations all over the world from dozens of scientific societies, um, AAAS being one of our strongest partners, Rush Holt is here, which we're, we're so glad about that partnership, um, and Carnegie um, Institution, obviously, as well. Um, but dozens of scientific societies, nonprofits, educational organizations, universities, museums, aquariums. Um, and I think, for me, the most exciting sector of this going forward is actually these scientific um, uh, centers and outreach organizations because what I've learned recently is that you have um, very little trust from the public as far as information that's coming from journalists or politicians, but people still really believe what they read on plaques at museums and aquariums. That is taken as fact, and so it's going to be critically important to work with um, all these scientific outreach and education organizations that have been doing this very important work for centuries of translating science for the public. So um, we're so excited to have partnerships with them. Um, and as a marine biologist, I was just completely tickled yesterday to see the Monterey Bay Aquarium, I don't know if you saw this, had a science march of the penguins through the aquarium right before they opened, all these penguins marching through the aquarium and the staff there holding signs that said climate change science is black and white with pictures of black and white penguins on them and happy feet for science policy and just like amazing stuff. So it's been just a thrill to see how all of these different organizations that share this goal have um, activated themselves with whatever their strengths and particular um, areas of expertise are. And so our challenge is to help to support building a movement that leverages all that, um, all the wonderful work these organizations are doing individually, and see if there's a way um, to make that much stronger um, uh, than, than they are as individual voices. So you're talking about the, the scale of this. You're saying that it started off as just a flurry of activity. At what point did you realize it was going to turn into this behemoth? When I started to get to know what was happening with all the satellite marches, so it's one thing to say, like, this centralized organization has a bunch of partners. Um, it's another thing to start getting emails from those partners about how they're mobilizing their membership. And it's yet another thing to know that Kishore, who is one of the most amazing people that I have never met, but who is organizing all the satellite marches and is based in San Francisco and hosted that event there yesterday, um, he and his team managed to organize over 600 marches all over the world and have them officially registered, have them supported with materials on outreach and diversity and inclusion and how to deal with the press and how to, you know, support speakers who were going to be talking about the role of science. And so that was the moment I realized that this was something much bigger than I had imagined. Absolutely. Um, so... We now, we've been talking a lot about um, how scientists can get involved, how artists can get involved, but how do you get the general public involved? Because they're also instrumental in making sure that this moves forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
that is definitely an enormous challenge and, and very important to do. And I think it's also really nice to notice that the people at the marches yesterday, the majority of them weren't scientists. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are people who care about science. These are kids who want to be scientists. My favorite, among my favorite signs, um, there was a, mo- a mother who had a, carried a sign that said, mother of a future scientist, and her son standing next to her with a sign that said, future scientist. <laughs> and I was just like, makes me miss my mom and wish she were here marching with me. But um, So things like that are a really important part of it. Um, and Steely saying that your daughter said, oh, scientists are cool? Like, that's a really important moment um, as well. So I think um, the public is is already a part of this, but there is obviously a huge opportunity to broaden and deepen that engagement. So amongst the pillars of the work that the March for Science is doing going forward is um, improving scientific outreach and communication. So the reason that we got ourselves into this situation where we needed to march for science at all is because the scientific community to date has not done a good enough job of explaining the research that we do, why it's so important to our health and well-being and economy, um, and and why people should care about it, and why it's like really exciting, um, and deserves the support of politicians for funding, as well as um, has enormous value in in supporting the um, the creation of good policy that's based on evidence. So. Um, That's number one, is making sure that we support improved uh, public outreach uh, and communications around science. And the second part is improving scientific literacy. So working with educational institutions and schools, um, uh, organizations that have been doing this work in scientific education to make sure, the BioBus I think is here, and their work is absolutely (laughs) incredible in that regard, like bringing a retrofitted school bus to communities to have kids look in microscopes and actually engage in science in like a really cool and exciting way. So um, partnerships like that are really um, important to us too. So um, better scientific outreach and communication, improving scientific literacy, and then the third being to make sure that science is involved in policy and, and pushing for policy change along those lines. Yeah, I think my personal hope is that the number of scientists who've come out for the march to begin with is an indication of how many of them now hopefully are prepared to engage. Yeah, and I mean, as we all know, uh, you know, most people in the U.S. don't vote. And so scientists can be a really, really important voting segment if we activate scientists. And that's not about politicizing science, that's about activating scientists as citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another thing that I'm hoping can be um, an outcome of this moving forward and that we'll be pushing for, certainly. Yeah. Um, so again, we have, we already have people lined up for questions. So All right. the gentleman on the left. <laughs> Hi. Um, <clears throat> it, it seems to me that one of the uh, obstacles uh, for scientists is the growing complexity and insularity of science. Specialization makes things much more, uh, much less accessible to people who are not experts in their field. And it's always seemed to me that uh, this, um, the, the effort to outreach has to start with scientists themselves on an mm-hmm. individual level. Um, I had an idea at one time, I, when I was uh, defending my thesis, uh, PhD thesis, that Uh, The people in the room uh, and I understood what I was talking about, but possibly no one else. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
and I always thought it might be a good um, pedagogical uh, step, is to have PhD candidates prepare an explanation of what they're doing and its uh, importance to the lives of people and deliver that defense to a fifth grade class. Wow, that's a great idea. And if that were made a requirement of a thesis defense, you would probably have a lot more scientists who could explain what they do and the implications of it. I would love it. to see that happen. Um, I certainly feel like most science can be broken down and explained simply, and that it's almost um, something scientists like to hide behind to say that their work is too complicated to explain, like you couldn't understand this, like that's nonsense. Um, scientists need to be able to explain their work and there are a few things um, along those lines that are happening and one that's really fun, I f I'm forgetting the exact hashtag, but on Twitter it was like tweet your dissertation or something. You had to explain your PhD thesis in a tweet and when you break it down to that level it becomes hysterical, right? So <laughs> one of mine would be, so I did research on how to modify fishing gear um, that's used on coral reefs. So fish traps are very unselective. Anything that goes in stays. You have a huge amount of wasted fish because of, of bycatch. Um, and so if I were to tweet that chapter of my dissertation, it would be um, put a hole in the side and the baby fish get out. Because <laughs> that's what I, I did, like 300 scuba dives to prove that if you put a slot in the corner of the trap, then you can reduce bycatch by 80% without affecting fishermen's incomes. Um, so there's those kinds of things that's happening. There's like interpretive dance competitions, like dance your PhD. That's like really cool. So as a way of like integrating art and talking about things in other ways. Um, but as far as the general trend you're noticing as of like hyper-specialization, I actually see the opposite. So I came through the National Science Foundation's graduate fellowship program on interdisciplinary research, the IGERT program. So interdisciplinary graduate research an education traineeship, education research traineeship. So um, that program has been amazing. So they supported um, three uh, years of my two or three years of my dissertation work, and and they create these entire programs at, at universities that span multiple departments. So mine was between the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the Economics Department at UCSD. Um, and those programs, they're supporting all over the country. Um, and so I was able to complete a PhD in marine biology with only about 30% of that research being qualified as traditional marine biology. The rest was sociology, anthropology, anthropology policy. Um, I like anthropology. <laughs> anthropology, yeah. Um, so I think we actually are seeing a lot more interdisciplinary research now, and um, that's obviously a trend that I'd like to see continue. I actually have a quick comment to follow up on that. Um, a lot of universities now, I started in New Zealand, they do a three-minute thesis competition. Um, I know because I've participated in it at the University of Georgia, and it's exactly that. It's defend your thesis in three minutes, in language that a lay audience can understand. And in fact, the judges of the competition, none of them are, are scientists. That's they're, great. They're local politicians. Or, New Zealand seems to be know. really leading the way on a lot of this. I think they also have an award for science communication. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A national award. Yeah, yeah. And, and so now it's just made its way all over the world. So any universities that are listening to this podcast, you might wanna look into putting that into uh, one of your graduate school programs. Yeah. Great to know. 
So, lady on the right. Hi. Um, I, just, I just wanted to say something that's more not necessarily a question, but um, some statements. Um, I just wanted to say, uh, as, a, as a member of society, something that Steely said in terms of, um, you know, why, what's the importance of him studying um, meteors for signs of life and what does that have to do with people of today? That I think that the average layperson, um, and I'm from the anesthesia world, I give anesthesia for a living. Um, I think the average layperson doesn't understand how studying things from the past connect the dots to what our present and what our future is and how it's so important and how, why it's so important for it to be part of policy and for us to fund those things today. Um, I think that what this whole march, when I started following it a month ago, two months ago, it's beautiful and unbelievable about, I mean, I, I was on yesterday on Facebook and saw a picture from Uganda. You know, how awesome is that to reach all corners of the earth? Um, and I can also say as a, as a mother, I brought my kids and um, my husband and I coach um, Odyssey of the Mind, if anybody's heard of it. Oh, yeah. So we try and inspire and encourage and excite kids in, um, in a scientific way um, in our basement <laughs> um, every day, or not every day, but close to it, uh, depending on how many, coach, how many teams a year that we, um, we coach. So I think it's important to um, excite the people around you and then have it have a cascade effect, if you will. Absolutely. I was speaking with um, Megan Smith yesterday, who was the chief technology officer for America until a few months ago. She's incredible. Um, and she was saying, um, imagine if physical education classes, you showed up and they were like, okay, today we're going to be studying basketball. Everybody open your textbooks. And that's what we do for science. So things like Odyssey of the Mind are critical because it takes it out of this theoretical, dry, boring setting into like science is cool, engineering is cool, there's the whole maker movement, which I think is like a beautiful thing that's happening across the world right now. So any opportunity that we have um, as a scientific community to say like, let's not just read about it and talk about it, like let's, let's do, do experiments. Let's actually use the scientific method to understand the world around us and then see what we can do with that information to make better decisions. So um, I think highlighting the great work of organizations like Odyssey of the Mind and all of these um, scientific education um, organizations that are working with kids and communities and adults and the um, citizen science movement that's happening. We're so thrilled to have citizen science organizations amongst our partners as well. Um, that's obviously like critical to all this because science, um, as long as it continues to be seen as something that happens far away and that is like incomprehensible. Um, it's not it's, just in a museum. Yeah, it, it's not just in a museum, but museums also have a really important role in, in translating do, that. But, in, yeah. but living, it's living. living. Yeah, it's um, not something that's static, like behind a glass. It, it involves yeah. everybody. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank you for all the coaching work that you're doing. That's so important. So another question to the left here. Yes, I'm with the National Communication Association, and one of the things I'd like to put forward is the concept of both and. When we talk about science being simplistic and doing it in a tweet, I think that's important, but as Steely pointed out, 
science is also very complex. And one of the things that I'm seeing in public communication is the idea anyone can understand everything. And that's not necessarily possible. They can engage, they can come into dialogue and conversation. So I think we should be cautious and hold both end. It is both simple in some ways, but simultaneously it is both complex. And we have people who spend their lives and are experts on this information. And at some point we need to trust and engage with those individuals as well. Particularly when we're talking about public policy, evidence-based research and decision-making. Absolutely, thank you so much for raising that point. I think um, I completely agree. And so when you see things like um, in the, I think that the public can understand all of the general concepts about science. So um, for, for me on sustainable fishing, it's like if you find a way to catch fewer fish and let them make babies, then fish populations can recover. If you create protected areas, then ecosystems can rebound. So the basic principles should absolutely be conveyed clearly to the public. But the detailed dynamics of species and feeding behaviors and um, you know, the biochemical in reactions that are involved in all of this are not necessarily things um, that can be explained simply or quickly without that education, like the fact that scientists go through a decade of training before they um, are, are actually practicing scientists out in the world, um, that should absolutely be respected as a, a field of expertise. And we're seeing this, this, this um, oversimplification um, as a challenge too, because you have, um, you know, politicians and public figures saying, I'm not a scientist, but, and then giving their scientific opinion. So um, I absolutely want to see expertise respected and brought into policy discussion. So yes to the both and. Um, and for me, the funniest example of this kind of thing is all the headlines we see in the press, like um, chocolate's good for you, and like coffee will solve all your problems, and like all these things where you have like journalists and society breaking down what they think are the most um, sort of like compelling headlines of scientific papers when the reality is actually like much, much more complicated. As much as I want like coffee, wine, and chocolate to be the cure all, <laughs> um, that is not what those papers actually say. <laughs> and I have to say that as a scientist myself, I think. Maybe the general public also assumes that we all somehow understand each other's work. I mean, you can explain string theory to me until the cows come home. I will not understand that. I just Same. don't get it. <laughs> and so I, I think the problem is that we've got the training to say, okay, we understand that the other scientists over there, we trust those guys have come to their consensus. I'm never going to understand that, but I have to say, okay, well, this is what they say, so we will support them on the basis of that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's another thing to consider, that we, for a lot of the time, we're also the general public. We're not know-alls, really. No. <laughs> um, so yes, gentleman on the left. Yes, this is a, a policy question for you. So I have a diverse group of friends, and we like to talk science sometimes, uh, especially like when it comes to politics or whatnot. I find, you know, when we talk about cap and trade, the biggest problem with it is the price tag. So when people, and, and I can understand that because some of them are poor, where they've come from, things of that nature, it's just they can't pay it. So when you hear something like that, is it the scientist's responsibility to come up with another plan that can take care of you know, that aspect as well? Or 
do we say, look, this is, this is how it's gonna have to be done, you know, in order for change to actually occur? That's a really important question, and I think part of the answer for me is expanding our definition of science, because there's climate science, which says we need to do something to mitigate our emissions and turn around this terrible trend that we're on. But then there's economics and sociology, um, and those are really important fields of science that have a role to play in making sure um, that communities, um, that certain communities that are probably already marginalized, the poor, poor communities, communities of color, don't bear the brunt of these um, larger problems that they haven't even caused. So I think by bringing in multiple fields of science, by approaching it as an interdisciplinary scientific challenge to come up with solutions, I think that's an important step um, of the way too. Um, and yes, there certainly is, uh, there's, there's the science that can identify the problems, and there's the, then there's like a next step of identifying solutions. Um, and those two are obviously related and sequential, but not necessarily all the same people, right? So you have your scientific experts, your atmospheric chemists, um, who are helping us understand all, all of the reactions that are going into this problem and, and sort of like what, what the levers are as far as opportunities for um, reducing emissions from different sources. But then there's like who should be paying for this policy change, right? Um, is it the, you know, the corporate, should it be from corporate practices who have largely caused the problem? Um, or should it, and, and then making sure that it's not people who can't afford to pay that are bearing the brunt of that. And I, that is something that um, I don't have a, a very detailed knowledge of climate policy, but it's certainly something I've seen um, as regards ocean conservation. So when you're trying to address overfishing and you've had overfishing oftentimes by um, outside foreign fishermen in a, in, a, in a small island, then saying, okay, well, this is overfished, so local fishermen, you have to now stop fishing. That is not a fair solution, right? So um, they haven't caused the problem, but their food security and livelihoods are now at risk. So how do you manage the transition is a really big part of the challenge. How do we manage the transition to clean energy and reduced fossil fuel use? How do we manage the transition from overfishing to sustainable fishing in a way that takes care of communities? Um, I think that's something that more scientists need to be focusing on, um, is how to apply what we know about the way the world works to solutions that will work for people. So I think, sadly, we've completely overrun. We're going to have to leave it there. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure talking to you because this, I think this is a hugely important subject. Um, My pleasure. As, Thank you for having me. Yeah, as Scientists Inc., our parent corporation, who are partners of the March for Science, we're excited to see what you guys come up with. Um, and yeah, I think on that note, we'd like to thank the audience as well for coming out to listen to us. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. You've just been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS. 
Facebook or Google Plus using the handle Two Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at twoscientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. waving at me? No, they're waving at somebody else. Nobody cares about me. <laughs>